Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining again. This next episode of In the Nick of Time, we're going to have a lot of fun today to talk to David about open source and supply chain security and why it matters to everybody here. Uh, that's going to be very interesting also to dig into the work being done at the White House with the open SSF. So uh, stay tuned. We're going to get started now. Uh, but before that, Want to remind everybody, please, to uh, subscribe to the show so we can uh, make sure you get the notifications uh, about the next episode. So if you go to inanikoftime.tv, you're going to be able to do that and just give your email, and you're going to get one email a week to be able to uh, know who the next guest is going to be, and you're going to see that uh, uh, next week we have another uh, am uh, amazing guest uh, uh, joining us the August uh, 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern with uh, Ar Armin uh, from HashiCorp, the co-founder and, and CTO. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to dig into how they created HashiCorp and all of the products with Vault and Sentinel and so on. It's going to be uh, a very deep dive on the Savvy Smash and Zero Trust side of things as well. Uh, so uh, stay tuned next week at 1 p.m. as well. Also wanted to remind everybody we're going to be launching in August uh, about... Uh, uh, mid-August, uh, to be more precise, the new learning platform, Le Learn with NEC. Uh, it's a self-learning course, but it's continuous learning with new content every week uh, with uh, a full course on digital transformation, DevSecOps, Zero Trust, Cyber, uh, with 40-plus segments, uh, plus one new segment every other week, and plus one Q&A live session with me uh, live as well. Uh, every other week. So that's going to be a lot of fun with a full committee of, committee of practice. So if you're interested in uh, becoming one of the member of the Learn with Nick platform, make sure you send us uh, a, a DM on LinkedIn so we can add you to, to the wait list. We're already 5,000 uh, subscribers. Pretty amazing. It's going to be a very strong community with a lot of uh, uh, 1,500 companies paying, um, you know, two, three, four hundred, five hundred seats. Um from companies in telcos, banks, healthcare, a lot of uh, uh, DOD-related organization, and also uh, uh, five uh, uh, nations uh, with 5i uh, uh, and a, a little bit of NATO as well. So it's going to be a lot of fun to share and learn together. So uh, uh, stay tuned for the launch of Learn with Nick in about uh, two weeks. All right, so now I'm going to bring our guest today. But first, I want to give you a quick rundown on what uh, David uh, Wheeler has been uh, working on. And he's obviously an expert in, on open source software and developing uh, secure software. Uh, his work include uh, the Open Source Security Foundation, OpenSSF, Secure Software Development Fundamental Courses, and the mind-boggling, fully countering, trusting trust through diverse double <laughs> compiling, DDC. Always a simple title, but... Very good stuff. I read it. Uh, so you have to read it too. Uh, he developed also back in 2009, uh, really what was the first DoD uh, policy on open source. Uh, he is now the director of open source supply chain security at the Linux Foundation. And he, because he has nothing else to do except working 20 hours a day, is also teaching uh, a graduate course um, in uh, uh, developing secure software, obviously, uh, at George Mason University. And because he loves the university so much, he has a PhD in information technology, a master in computer science, uh, one certif certificate in information security, one certificate in software engineering, a BS in uh, electronics and engineering, all from GMU. 
is also a CSSP and a part of the uh, IEEE, and he lives uh, like me uh, in Virginia. Uh, so we're going to bring David now. Uh, give me a second to bring him on the screen. Here we go. Hey, David, welcome. Hello. Thank you very, very, very much. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. Uh, you know, you, you've done so much, uh, and and I don't know how you find the time to uh, get all these degrees. I have I have zero degrees, so you beat me pretty easily, <laughs> since I only have a high school diploma. Uh, uh, skip so sleeping. I don't even know if really the, something. Yeah, skip you know, sleeping. So. It's the simplest approach. <laughs> I guess you don't you don't sleep much. Um, so first, like I always ask our guests, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of uh, your background and your journey uh, since you started. Okay. Well, you know what? When we start at the beginning, as far as computing goes, um, I was really interested in electronics when I was in elementary school. And when I was in uh, middle school, I discovered something called a computer. Now, uh, the uh, computer that the first computer I ever used had uh, four Kibbe words, uh, PDP-8. So things have gotten a whole lot better and a lot more capable since then. Uh, just a tiny bit. Just a tiny. Yeah, I'm pretty sure yes. uh, you know, IoT devices, uh, uh, <laughs> even ten years ago, could do better than this. So. Oh yes, uh, a ten cent CPU would do better today. So, but but you know what? Um, it's it was a start, and I, although of course it didn't have the capabilities of even a trivial computer today. I can immediately see this is amazing. You can help it think to do things. It'll go do them. This is extraordinary. Um, and uh, I uh, ended up, I, I went to school. I, uh, I I did various kinds of consulting tasks. Um, one job I had uh, before I'd even graduated, which I always thought was kind of fun, was uh, fun, was actually a lot of fun at the time, uh, was uh, I was the maintainer of the world's first uh, commercial multiplayer role-playing game. Uh, which was uh, a fun thing. However, the company folded, so my stock options worth nothing. Went back to <laughs> consulting, um, and uh, after I um, after I graduated, I joined um, uh, one of the companies that I was actually consulting for at the time, the Institute for Defense Analyses, which I think a lot of your uh, listeners already know who they are. It's a nonprofit tries to give good advice uh, uh, primarily to the U.S. government. Uh, Stayed there for many years. Um, even before that, I was working on, at least to some extent, on uh, security, just you know, trying to figure out how to defend systems better. Um, and over time, I got more and more interested, more involved in that. How do you, how do we secure these software, the software that we're developing? Uh, I also got more and more interested in open source software because uh, that was clearly something we were using a lot of. Um, and so I, I kept doing more and more of that, uh, trying to deal with that. And in uh, 2020, I got an interesting offer from the Linux Foundation. Uh, so from 2020 on, I've actually been working for the Linux Foundation, and you already read my uh, title. Uh, the uh, you know, so I'm interested. You know, gee, what's my title mean? Basically, I'm a subject matter expert. I cannot rewrite all the software in the world. That is not reasonable. But what I can do is go around to various projects, particularly ones with the Linux Foundation, and try to help them improve the security of the software that we all depend on. Uh, a good portion of my work nowadays is with the Open Source Security Foundation, whose overall mission is to improve the security of open source software. And I imagine we'll talk more about that uh, as we go along. But that's kind of my, my journey. I've been working on, you know, how do I, you know, I, I just like software in general, um, love learning, uh, but more recently, the last couple of decades, I've been focusing much more on open source software or secure developing secure software or that combination. 
Well, I can tell you after the introduction, everybody actually expects you to go and fix all open source software on the planet. Because Excellent, uh, excellent. Give, give me a day. So <laughs> you need to do that because uh, everybody is pretty uh, impressed by uh, your, cr your credentials. So, uh, well, thank you. A lot of work there. So now you can do the same and go fix open source for us, okay? Excellent, right, excellent. So, Let's dig into the real meat here. Uh, obviously, we know that uh, attacks are ramping up. Uh, what do you see we can do to uh, prevent uh, those attacks? Okay. Well, let me actually respond a little bit to that question because I think there's an important thing I'd, I'd like to emphasize here, which is we actually can't prevent attackers from trying to attack systems. I know that some people, you know, we can try to dissuade, but I think there, there's been some interesting strategic studies that basically say we are not going to be living in a world where we can convince attackers to just stop trying. Um, so instead, what we need to do is acknowledge that attackers are attacking, they will continue to attack, and that we need to prevent them from succeeding, either because we the software is designed so and its processes are designed so that's very very hard to attack or we detect and respond to uh the attack to those attacks so that they don't have uh, they have relatively little harm and there's a lot of ways we can do that uh but i think that's that first step is admit the attackers aren't going to stop we need to actually address the situation all right, so that's the first step. So how do we how do we start? I guess mitigating or or, or maybe uh, diminishing the the outcomes and the, the impact outcomes. on the organizations. Excellent. Well, uh, the first step that I would go to, strange as it may seem, is education. And I don't mean get a PhD, although you know I, I think the I, I got one. It, it was it was fun. It's certainly not for everybody. But there's a huge number of things that you as a de software developer can do that um, uh, don't take a lot of time and really make the attacker's life far, far more difficult. If you don't know where, to, where else to go, I would suggest go to the opensf.org site and on the top of it, uh, you can see a training link that links off to the Secure Software Development Fundamentals courses. Go click there, it's free, uh, takes about 14 to 18, say 16 hours, uh, which you can, you know, it's it's an online course. You can just, you know, take an hour or two to go. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think other people found it interesting. And it will prepare software developers for a whole lot of those things where there's lots of little simple things you can do that make it much, much harder to attack software. The first step is to know what to do. Now, after you know what to do and start applying those things, are there other things you can do? Absolutely. Um, if you're developing open source software, and I imagine we're gonna talk more about open source software, uh, there's something called the best practices badge. Try to earn a badge, it'll help you get there. Use lots of tools. The reality is tools are imperfect. They won't find everything. They will find things that turn out not really be vulnerabilities, but trying to do everything manually doesn't make any sense. So you should have a continuous integration pipeline and you should get tools into the pipeline to look for vulnerabilities. No, they won't find everything. No, some of the findings will be wrong and you have to tell the tool, now nah, ignore that. But they're still incredibly useful, really necessary long scale. And there's different kinds, we can talk about that. And um, because most software is actually other people's software that's reused, you need to have, um, you need to monitor for known dependencies, known vulnerabilities and what you depend on. 
uh, turn on various tools to look for vulnerabilities and what you depend on and get those automatically and rapidly updated, which means you need to be prepared to radically uh, to rapidly update when there's a vulnerability in something you depend on. You know, use package managers, use automated tests. Um, I mentioned dependencies because, as I said, most software, you know, most software is actually other people's software. Even if you only <laughs> limit it to open source software, um, Synopsis and uh, Sonotype did some studies. They found anywhere from 79% of software is actually just the open source software. Okay, not even including the proprietary use components. So um, before you bring them in, evaluate them. You know, are you sure that's the right one you need? You know, most, one of the most common attacks is something called typo squatting. Somebody creates almost the right project name. So double check that, that name, that software that you're bringing in. Is that the one you meant to bring in? Um, is, does it seem to be trying to be secure? Uh, and then make it easy for your users to update. And, and overall, I would just say continuously improve. You're just basically, just like anything else in your software, you know, you, you want to try to make it better. You also want to make it security better. So, I mean, there are other things you can do, but hopefully that gives you a kind of a, of a broad list of the kinds of things. Um, and none of these are, are you know, there, there's no miracles here. Um, it's straightforward, learn and apply what you've learned. No doubt, no miracles, but uh, it takes a lot of, uh... A lot of work, like you said, you mentioned learning, but you also mentioned tools. You mentioned yep. kind of the the importance of timeliness of updating software and kind of the you know the lack of of uh, of complacency of of some teams to make sure that uh, we're not compounding tech debt. So when you think of, right. of the timeliness aspect of things, how quickly are we really talking about that uh, you need to worry about updating critical uh, findings? I see some people that take way too long, in my opinion. But are we talking you know hours, minutes, days? What are we talking about? Um, I don't think there's a single number because it's, it depends on a variety of factors, um, anywhere from, you know, you know, you know, the attackers basically are looking also have a cost benefit analysis they have to do, you know, they want to get the maximum benefit from an attacker's point of view from the least cost for them. Um, you can, by thinking ahead and making it harder to attack, um, and, you know, reducing the result, you know, the impacts when uh, if an attack does succeed you, you can make it at least less likely that you're in the crosshairs um but uh you asked your question i think in exactly the right way which is you know how, you know how quickly do you need to and the answer better not be it's what the, it's the time the cio says or the ciso says <laughs> the ciso does not decide when you get attacked the attacker decides when you get attacked and so you need to work within the OODA loop of the attacker, not the... Uh, Many are the, automated now, right? So sometimes you don't, you know, the attacker can completely automate at least the discovery phase, so... That's right, that's right. So um, generally, we're, um, I, I, you, know, you, you asked me a question, so let me give you a, an overly simplistic, but I think at least the, the kind of, of, of time frame. We're talking about hours and days. Not weeks, certainly not months, certainly not years. If you're waiting for your ship to get back to port before you update, you've already been taken over. Right. Okay? That, that's a, that, that's how to ensure that your systems are taken over. Unless, of course, there's no uh, no connectivity, including no, no you know, right. and, you know and, and that sort Which of thing. And never really that, exists. There's always something yeah. somewhere. They keep saying a gap, but then you find out these uh, sneaky ways of, of connecting to things. Right. 
And Stuxnet showed that air gaps aren't really as strong as people wanted to think they were. The, right. the reality is that, yes, you do need to update. No, you can't wait forever. Uh, if you're waiting for a year plus uh, to update, you've, you've already kind of screwed up. So what, um, what's your take on some companies that say, hey, you know, this is not in my uh, my code path and, uh, you know, I'm not going to update the dependency. And I've seen companies having 1400 CVs not updated for seven, eight years just because they claim and we have no way of knowing for a fact. But that, uh, you know, those dependencies that were often open source dependencies were not in a code path and not exploitable, allegedly. Right. Um, technically, I mean, if that's actually true, if it truly isn't in the code path, um, they're right. And in fact, I, I think we do have to be careful of, hey, let's constantly update within two minutes whenever there's a, right. a vulnerable. That's not reasonable, okay? Well, what um, about eight years? I mean, do you still, if, if it's not in the code path, do you still never update it? I mean, that sounds like no. a... No, I, I think that's a terrible idea, though for, uh, uh, for security, though for two slightly different reasons. First of all, um, you, I'm, I'm glad the way you asked that question because, hey, they think it's not in their code path. Uh, the reality is um, that it may very well be right. St um, static analysis tools, for example, typically can't notice um, on you know dynamically generated um, linkages and connections. And a lot of software, I mean, it depends on your infrastructure. But for example, Java is notorious for a lot right. of runtime and that you know runtime analysis, and then you make the call. And so a lot of tools won't notice things that are being called, but you don't think they're being called. Uh, yeah, or the CV gets you a, a foothold in the in the container, and then you can use that one to move to that one, and and so it's very you know if when you have fourteen hundred right. CVs, it's almost impossible to know, right, which one is going to do what and whether there's a compounded set of effects you're going to have that's right. have in your system. So that's right, that's right. Uh, so first of all, you really can't be that confident in your analysis. I mean, it's not bad to use that as a prioritization scheme, but right, that's right. a prioritization scheme. The other problem is. Even if it's not it's not exploitable today, if you're using version 1.0 and the current version is 12.6, um, <laughs> if a vulnerability is found in 12.6, you almost certainly can't update 12.7. Okay, right. so leaving really really old vulnerable versions of code, especially in the runtime so when it's actually being deployed, um, is basically setting yourself up for being unable to be to respond. And really, it's about responsiveness. It's about resilience, it's about responsiveness. Now, how do you deal with this? Now, the solution, frankly, is planning ahead. There's no miracle, but it's actually pretty remarkable. If you use package managers, so you're not trying to manually copy packet you know, code in. If you're doing manual copying in, you're already doing it wrong, okay? That, that's not, you know, when there's only a, a one one file of, of code in your system uh, that you need to do, do deal with that way, that's fine. But as soon as you start dealing with hundreds and thousands, that's ridiculous. You need to automate. Second, you need to have an automated test suite. How good does it have to be? And the answer, I've, I've taken courses on testing, but I think there's a simple answer, much simpler, more direct answer. If I can test it and be confident and it passes and I can be confident to ship, then my test suite's good enough. You need, right. and that needs to be a fully automated test suite. Don't care about the manual test suite. Got a manual test suite. Mm -hmm. Manual is just another word for unused. 
Okay, nobody, nobody can repeat manual testing at the scale that we need to modern software. So automated tests, automated management of the packages of those dependencies. And now I'm, I'm getting reports, I can update, I can get a result within a half hour that says, yes, it passed my 3000 tests, I can ship, I can go ship. Um, now suddenly we're not, we're, because we are prepared ahead of time, because we know there's going to be vulnerabilities found in our dependencies. We don't know where they are, but we know it's going to happen and we're prepared for it and can, we can respond uh, faster than the adversary. Here we go. That's a good first step. So now let's dig a little bit into the, the supply chain security. Sure. What is different when you think of supply chain security and why does it even matter? Okay. Um, you'll find some variations and definitions, and I'm not going to try to dance on the head of the pin of some of the variations. But um, I, I think a whole, I mean, a whole lot of us became aware of during COVID of supply chain issues with things like suddenly <laughs> items like toilet paper disappeared off the shelf. And, you know, we, we suddenly, if, if, you know, things that we didn't think about suddenly be, we became very, very aware of. Um, software is, is no different in that, that grand sense from anything else. Nobody today, well, with, with some exceptions, but in general, software is not built completely all by itself. In general, software is mostly other people's software. You know, if you opened up a physical component, you'll find that the manufacturer of the device did not make the screws, probably didn't make the transistors, probably didn't make, you know, what did they do? They went out to other specialists who made those components, who and then went out to other specialists. And the same thing has happened with software. Software is fundamentally mostly other people's components, and th that is a supply chain. The, the components that you bring in from other sources are a supply chain in software. Now, unfortunately, that supply chain, the good thing about that supply chain is it makes our software, able to build software that's amazingly powerful with relatively few resources. The downside is because it's reused, if there's a vulnerability in it, and then uh, those vulnerabilities may be exploitable in the larger system they're in. Um, another challenge is that it's not just the unintentional vulnerabilities in the components, it's that the processes that those components used to develop and distribute can in fact be attacked. So all those things, you know, the attack of, of the of that those supply chains so that attackers may, for example, try to subvert the software that you intend to use between when they released it and you received it or maybe during its build process and so on. So supply chain security is basically all that uh, chain backwards through all your dependencies transitively uh, all the way back. Uh, and you'll see some variations on what's in, what's out from various definitions. But I'm going to take a broader definition, primarily because I don't care so much about the definition. What I want to do is prevent the problems, or at least make go. them much less likely to be to uh, have an impact. And and so why does it matter for for teams to start thinking about this now? Uh, it became obviously uh, uh, you know something we think about after the. Uh, the president uh, executive order on, on SBOM, but uh, uh, why should have people already paid attention to all of this stuff? Two answers. Uh, one I've already alluded at several times earlier, which is increasingly software is mostly other people's components. So increasingly, most of your vulnerabilities aren't in the software you wrote, but in the components that you brought in. Um, 
<clears throat> but there's actually a, a an interesting transition that we're starting to see. Um, if you look at supply chain attacks, they have radically increased. Uh, Sonatype did a study where they found that, I think it was last year, they increased by 650% or something like that. So they've dramatically increased. Now, why is that? That's an interesting question. Um, while we, well, uh, the proof's not in yet. Uh, the European Union did a study where they also found that, wow, the number of supply chain attacks really dramatically increased over the last couple of years. Um, and after analyzing the evidence that they had, they came up with a hypothesis that I think is the right one. Um, and that is, we are finally starting to see cases where the software being developed is more secure than it used to be. That's not to say that's perfect. Okay, that's that, that's not what I'm saying. Nobody's saying that. But <laughs> the good news is, while there's a lot to do in terms of education, there's a lot to do in terms of tool use. There are increasingly developers who are learning. There are increasingly developers using things like tools to find vulnerabilities and the, the custom code that they write. And so as a result, attackers are always looking for what's the cost benefit for them. What's the easiest way for them to get their bad things happening? And increasingly what they're finding is that instead of attacking directly the uh, development or the, or, or the operations of a system, it's often easier to attack upstream at the software that's going to eventually be brought into those components. And so I get, there's a good news, bad news story. The good news is we're starting to, we're starting to get improvements. The bad news is that the attackers are starting to work backwards. They are also shifting left, uh, but that's okay. We can do that too. Yeah. So, you know, everybody talk about shift left all the time and I was, uh, you know, a big proponent of it in DOD, but uh, you're saying uh, so effectively we're, we're, we're still always behind the attackers, right? We always uh, try to be better, but uh, they're always a step ahead pretty much, huh? I'm not sure if it's a step ahead. In fact, uh, I, I would say that the attackers are, 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 we are pressuring the attackers to do something that historically they wouldn't have done because, you know, I'd rather just, you know, if I'm an attacker, I want to attack the production system that I really cared about. Oh, wait. My, the defenders are starting to make that harder. Not in all cases. There's a vast amount of software that's really painfully bad in terms of security. But some of the systems that the attackers really want to subvert are starting to make, you know, get to get better. Hooray for that. Mm -hmm. We need more of that. But the shifting left of the defenders is good. Okay. But, and that has forced the attackers to shift left also because they have to basically shift left of the defenders uh but that's okay we as defenders can keep shifting left ourselves until they run out and until basically the attackers start running out of left as it were because uh, there, <laughs> there is a, there, there 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 are bottom turtles in all this uh you, right. you know you, there, it's you know there it, this isn't just a hey the game continues forever i mean in one sense of course it does attackers will continue to always look for uh, ways to break in, but the more we can make it more difficult, uh, more, uh, less likely, less impact and when they do succeed, uh, the harder we make their jobs. Um, and eventually some will drop out of the game, but we first have, we, we've got a ways to go before we get to that point. So you mentioned the fact that, you know, attackers are targeting now, you know, the DevSecOps pipelines and the, the source code repos and trying to get into the, uh, the left side of the 
the pie, I guess. And, yes. and so you've seen it with solar winds and many other attacks recently, right? Yes, indeed. Um, solar winds was a what, wake up call for a lot of folks. Yeah, no doubt. And what, what I guess, you know, and, and the fight they took forever to find out also is pretty scary, right? Right. Um, uh, what, do, should what we explain what that night? is? Or, or do, yeah. does someone know, know what that is? Uh, yeah, you bring, you know, give us some context, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I hate to interrupt your question, but you, you raised something that um, some, I'm not sure everybody in this audience will know. Uh, Solar Winds is a product widely used called Orion, um, used to monitor lots and lots of organizations. And unfortunately, uh, an attacker managed to subvert what's called the build process of Orion. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with software development, software developers typically write their software often as text, and then, but that's not what you actually run as a as a customer. Uh, there has to be a process to turn what the developers type in into uh, something that can actually be installed and used, and that process is called a build process. When the attackers subverted the build process, this meant that the developers were seeing one thing and were viewing it and so on but that wasn't what was getting shipped to the end users. And for a lot of folks, this was a big wake up call because this was not something that a lot of folks were looking for or concerned about. Uh, there are countermeasures, but the first step is acknowledging that, wait a minute, the attackers aren't just attacking the operational systems. They are attacking the processes used to develop it. They're attacking the uh, processes used to develop components brought in. And again, the attackers are shifting left, and so we've got to also shift our defense. We need to have our defenses shifting further left, too. Yeah, and, and so it's important for people to realize they, they did not tamper with the source code. They tampered with the build server That's right. that ended up uh, injecting malicious code into the uh, the software and then being shipped to the customer. And, and by hacking one company, they, they ended up hacking 100,000. Um, right. And so that that's obviously, like, back to your point, on, on the best... Uh, uh, outcome for the hackers and the least amount of work. Uh, that's a better way to, to think about it. So when you think of these attacks, what, what keeps you up at night specifically when it comes to that, that shift left and what we need to start thinking about? Oh boy. Um, I mean, you know, there's a long list of things to be, to, to be concerned about. Um, but, um, but I think the good news is that uh, we are starting on that journey. I mean, the reality is that everyone who develops every single one of these components, we need to basically up our game in terms of making sure everybody knows how to develop secure software, starts putting tools in. Um, right now, uh, you know, very much looking for the unintentional vulnerabilities is a key part of that. Uh, I've been encouraging uh, the use of multi-factor authentications, um, where uh, you know, so that basically. Um, you know, because attack, one of the things that hackers want to do is take over a, a developer's account and then insert a subversion that way. Um, so that counters a lot of those kinds of attacks. Uh, the good news is that each one of these things, they're not rocket science. They're using technologies already available. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> in, I think right now we've been focusing primarily on removing unintentional vulnerabilities from operations, move backwards a little bit. Let's get more tools in them, more education. Let's counter the um, subversion of developer accounts. Um, in the longer term, I do worry about malicious uh, developers as well and malicious builds. Uh, but the good news is that in both cases, there are solutions for this. For the um, subverted builds, uh, there are techniques like reproducible builds that can actually detect that kind of problem. 
And for malicious developers, the best technique anybody knows is having multiple reviewers, having other people looking at the software. You know, with, you know, hey, you just inserted some code that tries to execute some encrypted data. That's probably a bad idea. What's going on here? <laughs> um, and and so really, um, you know, it, it's. You know, the good news is that there are known techniques to deal with these things. The trick is putting these known techniques, well, first of all, making them known to the people who need to know them and then getting them into practice. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, you know, all the, the principle of, of GitOps and, and DevSecOps, when you stop thinking multiple set of eyes on approval and then no drift between the production environment and the, the development side and, and making sure there is a full ability to map what's running in runtime with what's in the code and that there's no drift is all kind of great mitigation capabilities to to mitigate at least some of these uh, attacks, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Kristen was mentioning that you know, a lot of people probably know more about uh, Log4j, the recent uh, vulnerability. Maybe you can give right. us also a quick rundown of Log4j and what it is. Okay, now I'm going to be separating things a little bit. Log4j is not a vulnerability; it's just a widely used component. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. the vulnerability, uh, uh, the vulnerability that a lot of people are, are talking about is something called Log4Shell, which log is a particular yeah. kind or or set of vulnerabilities um, in Log4j, which is a very very widely used component. Um, in this particular case, really, um, you know, uh, you know, there's well, there's something I and maintainers. I mean, it's it's not a, you know, it's it's a component that is, um, you know, widely used. It has uh, a number of folks who support it, uh, maintain it. Uh, but in this particular case, really, um, and it's it's log component on Java, right? That's right. It basically performs logging for Java uh, Java based systems. So you know, you know, modern systems very complicated. How do you debug it? And the answer fundamentally is as you run software, increasingly people uh, log. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. So that when there's a problem, you can go back and figure out what happened. Uh, there's nothing wrong with using a logging component. Um, you know, many 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 systems do. The problem is that Log4j had a vulnerability in it. If you uh, logged something in a certain format, all of a sudden it would download and install and run software from the internet uh, at a uh, from a location of the attacker's uh, decision, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Um, and it's log yeah. uh, Log4j is a library, right? So, so, yes. so thousands of applications were using it. It wasn't just one company. That's right. And and really, one of the big challenges, I imagine we'll want to talk about SBOMs in a moment, is that most users of Log4j weren't necessarily even aware that they were using Log4j. Because, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> you know, modern software, it's not just, hey, I want to bring in one component. I may bring in 10 components, but each of those components brings in 10 more components, which brings in 10 more components. I mean, it's not at all unusual to start with a so-called empty application and discover you have 700 or 1,000 dependencies uh, directly or indirectly brought in, uh, simply because of this transitive nature of I bring in something, it brings in something, it brings in something. And this is the same true. This is the same is true, by the way, for physical. Uh, software supply physical supply chains as well. I mean, you bring in a component that brings in another component from somewhere, which brings in a component from somewhere. Um, but 
But uh, because all of that ends up within the software that you're actually running, um, it's quite possible for you to depend on a component, but be unaware that you're using that component. And for a recipient of the software may have no idea whether or not, you know, it's, and by the way, the same problem happened with Heartbleed, which is a vulnerability in OpenSSL. There were a lot of systems that used OpenSSL, but not only did the, did the people deploying those systems not know, often the folks delivering the systems didn't know either. It was transitively included through multiple levels. Um, the uh, solution to that really is there's been an increased interest in something called SBOM, software bill materials, so that when, when there's a major critical vulnerability uh, that organizations can ask, the, not just ask the question, gee, this is a really big, bad vulnerability, where in our organization do we use it? They'd like to be able to answer that question without people having to try to work nights and weekends over holidays, trying to write specialized code, which is in fact what happened uh, with the log for shell vulnerability. Uh, people ended up trying to write all sorts of weird specialized code to look for something. And that doesn't really make sense long-term. It'd be much better to say, oh, I will push this button and I get the answer. Yeah, no doubt. So there was an interesting event right at the White House uh, with the Open Source Summit. Tell us a little bit of what happened and why why this matters. Sure. Um, well, in fact, talking about the Log4Shell, uh, Log4J, uh, Log4Shell vulnerability and Log4J is actually a good segue to this. Um, the, um, I mean, the, the uh, U.S. government, uh, like all governments, uses a lot of open source software, and the U U.S. Uh, government's quite well aware of that. Uh, you mentioned earlier the uh, uh, U.S. Department of Defense has had a policy on open source software for, for many years because you know, the DOD, like everybody else, uses lots of open source software. However, uh, Log4J made a lot of people worry. All of a sudden, you know, U.S. government was trying to find all the uses of Log4J, figure out which cases were vulnerable, uh, which cases were exploitable in their context, and this is incredibly difficult to do. And uh, and so it's, you know, and so they brought in uh, the open source, uh, basically wanted to have a meeting with various folks. And so they called a meeting and asked various uh, organizations, uh, including the Linux Foundation, including many others, and basically said, hey, um, you, we are using a lot of this open source software and this bad thing happened. We're not trying to stop using all open source software. That's not a reasonable goal, but we can clearly, it will be good to find a way to do things better somehow. And I, I don't, and I think that's actually the right thing to do. Whenever there's a big problem, bring folks together who understand it and ask, hey, what can be done to do better next time? That's a reasonable thing to do. Um, most of the organizations in the room, um, by the way, I was actually one of the attendees, uh, well, and I say room only in a virtual sense. It was actually a you know electronic call because COVID. You didn't even um, get to go to the White House. That's sad. Did not get to go to the White House. They originally were trying to do as a physical meeting, and that just it that uh, you know that just didn't work out. Uh, but that's okay. I still had a meeting anyway. Um, and um, most of them basically said we agree. This is an important issue. Uh, we actually formed this organization called the Open Source Security Foundation last year, actually a year before, and then have made some changes. 
Um, and so they pointed to the OpenSSF and saying, hey, we are already very concerned about improving the security of open source software. Here's where most of the work is going on. You know, please get involved. Give you know, uh, give us information on what your on what the needs are, and um, you know, and so basically, um, uh, <clears throat> there were several outcomes of that. But one was basically a number of folks, including me, went off to say, okay, what can we learn from this experience? And um, uh, I don't remember the exact date, but uh, uh, not that long ago, came out with something called the Open Source Mobilization Plan. Which try to say, okay, we you know we're already doing a lot. What additional things can we do to improve the security of open source software even further? And we're basically talking with other folks. Is this the right set of things to do? And you know, for the things which people do seem to agree, it's the right thing to do. Uh, trying to stand up for his groups and organizations to uh, go work on those things because um, we want you know. Uh, the the you know, bad things are bad things, but there's always the opportunity to learn and do better to prevent the worst the next time. And that's very much the goal here. And the good news is that things like the mobilization plan and so on, uh, you know, they're not really, although they help the U.S. government, I'm sure, um, they're not specific to the U.S. or U.S. government at all. Everybody around the world uses open source software. Every depends on the security of software. Uh, including open source software. So it's in everybody's interests, uh, except for the attackers, to uh, <laughs> to, uh, to make Although things better. they also better. use open source, I guess. So. I'm sorry? But, although they also use open source software too. But. Absolutely. They, uh, in, indeed, they do. Um, uh, well, we, anyway, we can talk more about that. But yeah, the, the good news is we've identified some things that we're working on. Um, you know, for example, things like you know increasing education. That's that's still a big problem and something I'll keep banging the drum on because uh, still today most software developers don't really learn very much about how to develop secure software. It's not an expectation in courses at universities and colleges. It's not something most boot camps cover. Uh, if you're self-taught, you're unlikely to see that immaterial either. And so you know it's um, you know it, it, it's 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 a problem. And it's something that we're actively working to uh, make better. And Mike was saying, you know, if, if open source usage is so uh, ubiquitous, uh, it affects both the public and the private sector. Why why wouldn't the federal government spend more money to fund it? Um, an excellent question. And in fact, the federal government is itself asking that question. Uh, there are actually bills and proposed bills in discussion uh to fund it more um I mean, it's, it's a lot of the same a lot of people have noted and i think rightly that um software particularly open source software is a kind of infrastructure it's um and it has the tragedy of the commons problem where you know i want somebody else to spend the effort not me <laughs> uh, and and that's perfectly understandable so um I think the honest answer to that question is that software, unlike roads, is a lot more invisible. Um, I have a double E degree, and one of the cool things about electronics is that you can bring up and show people little circuit boards and chips and physical things and can pin it around a room. Software is notoriously invisible. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of folks don't really don't really think about it. Um, and so it's been much harder 
to even though it has a serious effect when things go wrong, it's often been hard to point out. Um, also, I think in the past, there's just been less awareness within governments about software. I think that has changed significantly. Um, I remember, and I, I hope uh, I, I'll omit the name and, and they'll figure it out. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, uh, I was pleasantly surprised when we went to the White House, talked to various folks. And of course, obviously, lots of people with many different uh, backgrounds and knowledge. But, you know, I sat down with one of the uh, one of the one of the folks that's supporting, you know, the effort to improve, you know, looking at improving security of open source software and what can the U.S. government do? And it turned out, oh, wait, this individual used to be the lead of the Chrome security team. Um, oh, I don't have to explain to you what a build process is. OK, <laughs> uh, over time, you know, many, many years ago the knowledge about software within government was relatively small. I don't, I won't claim that it's universal or anything like that, but I think it's gotten better. So I think that yes, it hasn't gotten the attention it probably deserved, but the good news is I think it is starting to get that attention. Now, attention is not always the same as funding. I'm well aware of that. Uh, but nevertheless, I think uh, that there's interest in it and I have hopes that uh, that interest and turn into uh, useful action. I, I think there's reasons to be hopeful. Well, look, they even put a French guy as the first chief software officer in the DoD. So I guess you know there's something going on somewhere. I don't know. So, all right, let's look into our dear friend uh, Esbom. Uh, tell okay. us a little bit about you know what it is exactly and and the value it brings to the table. Okay. Actually, if you don't mind, I see a question from uh, one of the people. Do you mind if I, I want to quickly answer that? Sure. We're funny. That. Yeah. The, the question was, hey, you can't teach something that's constantly changing. Um, it's true that you can't teach something if it constantly changes, but this doesn't constantly change. Um, right. The number one kinds of vulnerabilities, if you look at... Um, uh, you know, if you look at, for example, one of the number one kinds of vulnerabilities from Microsoft for the last, what, 12 years, um, or Chrome, um, is uh, basically memory safety issues, buffer overflows, overreads, overwrites, um, and uh, use after freeze and such, um, occasionally a double free. Um, buffer overflows were talked about and discussed as a security issue in the 1970s, okay? Right. They're not changing. One of the most common kinds of vulnerabilities in web applications is SQL injection. It was yeah. that way last year. It was that way 10 years ago. Uh, while yeah. it's true that some things change, the reality is that the stuff that's a, that are, are key problems in security, uh, you know, how do you design software? You know, how do you design software for security has been known since the 1970s, not, not by developers. But the principles have been known since the 1970s. We just don't teach developers what they are, so they remain a mystery to them. We don't tell the developers. Is it, is it a training? Is it a training issue? I mean, you know, what it, is it's it? It's a training and education issue. Number one, it's also a you know lack of tooling, lack of review for those things. But it, the tools aren't very helpful unless you know what you're looking for. The reviews are useless unless the reviews know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, I, I often I start with training simply because that's step one. That's not the last step, but it's the first step. Um, and so, no, the, the fundamental issues for security have been the same for at least 50 years, mostly. 
Sure, some small changes have occurred over the years, but that's fine. We need to learn. We need to improve. Uh, but um, most of the stuff is the same old stuff, but we're not teaching our developers. We're not taking any steps to counter them. And so they continue to be the same old problems. Okay, now answer your question. What are SBOMs? Why are they matter? So SBOM just stands for Software Bill of Material. The usual analogy is it's an ingredient list. You pick up a box of cereal, you look on the side, you can find out what's in it. If you're allergic to one of those things, or maybe you have a religious belief where you, I will not accept certain things, um, you, you can say, oh, wait, no, I don't want to eat that because you know X, Y, or Z. Okay. Uh, S-bombs let you do the same sort of thing. They let me ask the question, what's in there? And then I can ask the question, is that something I want to ingest? Oh, it's got log. It's got the a log4j version XYZ. That's the vulnerable version. Why do you have the vulnerable version there? That you know, that that may be a vulnerability that's exploitable. And even if not, that suggests to me a lack of duty of care. You're not looking what's in there and making sure things are up to date. I'm now right reasonably concerned. And I, it's not just, hey, I have a vague concern. I have specific evidence that I either should or should be concerned about something. So that's what an SBOM does. Now, why does it matter? Because software is mostly other people's software, um, that means that a lot of the vulnerabilities are in other people's software. And so finding out what's in there can give you a lot of insight. Um, mm. It can tell you about both the known vulnerabilities and also the team, there's a lot of really obsolete software in there that suggests that when a vulnerability is found, they won't be able to respond in a reasonable time. You know, upgrading from 12.6 to 12.7, they can probably do quickly. I don't know anything about their development processes, but I there's no miracle that will let them update from 1 to 12.7. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so basically, while it doesn't tell you everything, when you're trying to make risk management decisions. And really that's what most of these decisions come down to. I want to make you know, risk management decisions where I can't avoid all risks, but I can determine this is much riskier, this is much less risky. You know, The odds of a problem are lower, the odds of an impact, you know, the impact if it happens is lower, and therefore I'm going to go in this direction. And so SBOMs provide information that we haven't had before um, about the software that has become important now because software is so much other people's software. And so when you think of SBOMs, right, providing the kind of the list of dependencies and what's being used and the the, the vulnerabilities of these, and so giving you kind of a, a risk posture of, of the uh, the software and the, the dependencies inside of that software, uh, when you, you, you look also at the other side of the, of the risk, which is, you know, who is behind the, the, the packages and who is behind some of that open source community, you know, particularly for us, I guess, in DoD, we think about uh, foreign, you know, uh, actors uh, being the only contributor to an open source project. I, I've yet to see a lot of work being done on SBOM when it comes to uh, provenance and who all the contributors, the diversity of contributors, are we relying on one dude in his garage, you know? Uh, right. Uh, is there work on SBOM stuff to start thinking of that kind of stuff? I I, I think that um, <clears throat> I, I, I guess I can answer that yes and no. Um, 
So I, I think we have to be careful that S-bombs are not the solution for all things. Okay. Right. They do not solve all. What they do is they provide you information so you can take the next step. Okay. Um, you mentioned. So how do you know the bit of material? I mean, if, if you don't know who made the material you're, you're listing, mm -hmm. how is that a good enough representation of the materials if you don't know who made it? Um, actually, in a vast number of ca cases, you don't care. Because mm -hmm. if I get a, if I know that I've got log4j, version X and it's hideously old. I, you know, actually you can find out. Um, what a about smaller projects, right? I mean, right, right, but, 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 but let me, let, let me finish, finish this, this, this yeah. thought. Um, in a vast, vast number of cases, um, it's not so much that you care about exactly who the problem is that there are known vulnerabilities in old versions or it's just really old. And so it's unlikely to be updated. And you don't need to delve deeply into provenance to answer that question. Um, right. And, and right now today, that's perceived as the much bigger issue is simply the, you know, it doesn't matter that there's an up-to-date version that doesn't have vulnerabilities. You're not using that version. So right. since that right now is the primary problem that people are, 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 are seeing, let's focus on the primary problem. And S-bombs generally only tell you, here are the components, here are the version numbers. And then you can do it. And when you receive that, now you can do an analysis. You can analyze things like, well, what are the known vulnerabilities of that? If you want to go further and ask about the project, you can do so. Um, frankly, my first step wouldn't be so much the exactly who it's the, is this a one person per project or there are lots of contributors? It's a live, it's a lively project. You know, there are multiple people doing reviews um, and that sort of thing you can very, very quickly figure out without uh, trying to delve into nationalities and so on and so forth. No, no. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like volume of people and, and contributions. Right. And, uh, and you can absolutely do that. There's There are tools that will say, hey. But it's not this, in the SBOM process, right? It's Well, it's the SBOM itself is simply an ingredient list. And just like a cereal, right. you would not expect a cereal box side to say, Oh, here's the name of the chemical. Let me tell you, let me show you the diagram of the chemical. And let me no, show you. No, but they tell you where the factory is. Well, uh, they may or may not tell you where the factory is, but they're going to no, give do. you the name of they the. Well, and not necessarily in cereal boxes. Uh, we, I can we, tell you it's mandated by law in the United States to show where the, the product was, was made and packaged. We, right. 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 But, but the, my, my point here for, for software, the point though is that we want to identify the component. And now you can go back and answer those other questions because those other questions are much easier to answer once you know what the component sure. is. And that's really, basically it lets you link the, I have a product, there is information out there in the world, how do I figure out how to connect those two? And and so basically right. the SBOM provides the link, but it, you then have to take that SBOM data and do the analysis. And there's a lot of folks who are looking at you know, well, not looking at have tools to do that analysis, but there's a chicken and egg problem. It's hard to encourage the use of those tools without data to use them, and it's hard to encourage people to provide this data without any tools to analyze them. And so, uh, the U.S. government and some others are very much trying to kickstart that that problem so that there'll be S bombs so that they can be analyzed to encourage more people to generate S bombs to encourage improvements in tools all the way around. Interesting. 
All right. So we talked about SBOM. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work being done by the Linux Foundation on uh, SPDX. Okay. So SPDX is a standard format for exchanging SBOM data. Um, and it's been at work for quite some time. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I can't, uh, earlier we finally got an it is an official ISO standard. So a lot, for a lot of governments, that's a really big deal. They they want to make sure there's a a, a, a uh, an internet it is an official international standard. Um, SPDX does a number of interesting things. Um, so let me just kind of uh, point out um, historically. Um, you know, there's many reasons to ask why are there what ingredients are in the software. Um, two of the main reasons to ask this questions are for legal questions and for security questions. Um, historically, uh, a lot of folks really wanted to know what the components were for legal questions. They wanted to know whether or not, you know, I'm about to do a merger acquisition. Uh, what are the components in here? Is there a legal issue that we should be concerned about? Um, and so, uh, and, and so, therefore. Um, there are tools basically, we, you need tools to analyze and, and report this, but how do you report that? You need a standard way to report this information, this SBOM information. And SPDX has, it basically lets you specify, here are the components and you know, transitively. So here's component X, component X includes component Y and information about those components, including things like licensing information. A lot of folks know about SPDX, not for the broader, SPDX format to tell you about the SBOM, but just for what's called the license expression, because that has a very simple way to express uh, the license of a particular component. And for a lot of folks, even just that portion of SPDX is really, really helpful. Um, and so um, SPDX, uh, it's been in work for a while. Uh, they There's a version now that's got an official ISO standardization, and they're currently at, um, you know, uh, that's, uh, 2.2 is out, and they're currently working on various extensions, improvements to reduce a version three, which is currently ongoing, and love people to, um, you know, to know more. Ah, yes, many organizations are using Cyclone DX, which is a competing format. Um, uh, Cyclone DX, as actually mentioned in the mobilization plan. Um, and so this is, a, this is a challenge here. Unfortunately, we are having a standards war which is never any fun, um, and, uh, and that's kind of unfortunate. Um, so, do you think um, there is a need to support both effectively and just be agnostic? I, I certainly that's the way the U.S. government has gone, and I, I think for a lot of folks that's going to be where we're going to move at least in the short term. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that's um, it, it's unfortunate that we've decided to have a format war. But uh, since there since there is a format war, uh, I'm much much more interested in getting the SBOM data. Um, you know now, uh, the, you know, and and then you know, getting and then trying to go from there. And I, th I think we're probably for at least some time going to be seeing uh, use of both of those formats. There's actually a third format, SWID, of some folks are using. Um, it really wasn't intended uh, for the kind of SBOM, particularly for open source components, which is the majority of, of, of components. So I, I, am, I, I think it's really down to those two. Uh, but some folks don't agree, and, that, and that's fine. Uh, 
Now there's another oh, question that folks and that was asked before that one, and I, I've lost it now. Yeah, you... I'll, I'll flag. I flagged a few. You know, we'll we'll wait a little bit. Um, okay. I want to make sure we don't completely go off track. There's say so many, but um, and you don't even see all of them. So um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's Twitter also. So um, here we go. So let's see what else we got after this. Oh, here we go. So when you think of S bomb and the adoption of of S bomb. What are the challenges for open source projects to start doing their own SBOM so then people can consume that so based on their dependencies, right? I, I think the quick answer is we need better tooling. We particularly, we need uh, very good um, open source tools for generating SBOMs. Ah, I do remember what one of the questions was earlier. It was about the challenges of figuring out uh, materials after the fact when you, when you receive, say, an in package. Um, I think that there is a use case for such tools, but those are the, you know, when all else fails and you're in a bad situation, here's the best you can make of a bad situation. If you're in the bad situation, I mean, you, you do what you can, uh, but that is not uh, the long term I think that we need to do. Uh, the, the basic answer to the how do we generate S-bombs is during build processes, because it, that's when the most information is available. Um, right. very much, if, uh, if I can continue the analogy, if I receive some cereal and I want to know what the components are, I could use various kinds of chemical analysis to try to figure out what's in it. <laughs> that turns out to be really hard. Okay, I don't know. If yeah. I, if, especially those who are familiar with our organic chemistry will realize that's incredibly difficult. But wait a minute, if you're the maker of the cereal, you know that grains are going in, sugar is going in, this color is going in. It's much easier when you're building, when you're generating, when you're in the factory to figure out what components are going in. And so really, that's where it needs to happen. So one challenge is we need to improve the tooling to make this super easy to do during generation. Another problem is, frankly, um, we're asking uh, developers to do something that helps the end users, not the developers themselves. Usually, you know, it's much easier to convince a developer to do something if it helps that developer. Uh, but in fact, this is something that is desired downstream. Um, I don't think that's a disaster because most developers really do want to help other people using the software that they've developed. Um, but we've got to make it easy, easy, easy. Um, and I, I think uh, I'll, I'll go for, I'm going to step a little further, but I don't think it's, it's a, a terrible, um, terribly strong step. Uh, basically, we need, we need tools to be, that can be easily used in generation and we need good open source, in particular, we need good open source tools because if we expect people to spend lots and lots of money to, uh, buy products to generate these S-bombs, um, within open source pro software projects, I don't think that that's a, a likely winning game. Now, I do think there is a role for proprietary software for doing heuristic analysis after the fact. You know, here's a blob, go figure it out. Um, that's really hard to do. So I could see a, 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 a field for, but I, I think that we need to use those in the, only in the worst possible case, because it's so hard to do. The results are often extremely limited they're often wrong in certain ways they have huge emissions and it's not because software developers are terrible it's just because you're asking 
uh, someone to do an incredibly difficult problem and, and a lot of heuristics are necessary to even try. So free is probably important, right? For yep. Pencil specifically. And and then when you compare that to uh, to the commercial products, Right, that also okay, let me, let me stop you right there because you work for the DoD. If you look at the DoD open source software policy, you'll yeah. you'll note yeah, that uh, uh, COTS and um, commercial software includes open source software. If it is licensed to the public it, it and it has a non-government use, it is automatically commercial software. So pretty much all open source software is always commercial software. And if it exists already, it's already COTS. But there are, but I know what you mean. What you mean is proprietary yeah. software. And are there challenges for proprietary software? Are there challenges for open source software? Um, I, I think, you know, the answer is yes. Um, in both cases, I, you know, basically it's the, you know, uh, tooling. We need to make the tools easier to use uh, really for all cases. I mean, the proprietary folks have the same problem. You know, there's, you know, there's a cost benefit well, issue have, for them have a too. little bit more money, but yeah. Uh, they, they have more money, but they also have the challenge that they, you know, like all software developers, they're trying to get something done. <laughs> okay. Right. And, yeah. you know, there's limited resources um, and, and so on. And not all not all uh, proprietary folks have a lot of money and not all open source software has no money. So it's, it's a much more complicated than that. Right. Um, now, as far as the challenge, that's one challenge. Um, I think... Uh, there is an additional challenge that the proprietary software developers work with. Um, and uh, and that is a lot, uh, not all, but many proprietary software vendors uh, do not want to reveal the software that they use within their components. Um, you know, I, I can be a little sympathetic, I guess, but the reality is if you thought that was your secret sauce, you're going to be disappointed when you find out all <laughs> the people who can analyze the software and figure it out anyway. Um, right. I, I that think doesn't fly anymore, does it? I, I don't. I don't think that flies very well. I, I think that's. Um, I mean, if, if it's a I service, I a lot only, of that with a container on Iron Bank in DoD. A lot of people saying my secret sauce. You know, you're going to show my secret sauce. Yeah, I, I think it'll be. Uh, there are things called uh, secret sauce, but if the secret sauce is publicly available software that anybody can get. Uh, let me tell you something. It's not very secret. And right. So yeah. um, I think I think that's I, that's a that I think that's a social challenge. It's not a technical challenge. It's a it's a misunderstanding of thinking something is their secret sauce when it frankly isn't. It never was. But they're so used to thinking of everything as being special that they don't realize yeah. you're actually frankly not so special. Uh, so I think right. that that's one of one of the other challenges um, for them. Now I think one of the other challenges, and this is really not just proprietary, is the first time you generate an S bomb, you will probably discover things you don't like, and you'll and then you'll say, "Gee, I'm going to tell my customer all these horrible things." Say, so, "Well, to start with, yes, but maybe that additional insight will give you reasons to fix those problems because." wait a minute, you know, um, you know, I can see that some of my components are many, many years out of date. Well, time to fix that. And that's okay. That first step to fixing a problem is knowing you have one. There we go. Interesting. All right. So we talk about costs. We cut, well, and, and open source, I guess, but I, I get what you mean. Uh, uh, so when you think of the S-bomb, right? 
how deep would you have to think about as bomb when it comes to dependencies do you do you is it endless and and you know like you said you end up with a thousand uh dependencies is rec recursive and and infinite uh, well, inf thankfully, there, there is going to be no infinity because eventually there will be. I mean, yeah, at some point you're going to get to the end of it. Right. Yeah. There, there, you know, presumably your software isn't of infinite size. So there's going to be a finite right. number of components in there. Yeah. Um, you know, now maybe Although they keep adding more stuff and you could make it, you know, each product could add more shit and it's just endless, right? But, oh, yeah. it, well, it, it is endless but finite. Um, yep. Endless end up in a, in a social sense, it, but evolution, it really is finite. Way, yeah. Right, it yeah. really is finite, and that—that's a good thing. How deep? Um, uh, really, I—I um, I think the, the question becomes, what is the purpose? Okay, mm -hmm. um, and I—and I think that from the point of view of a customer, okay, what they really want is enough information to be able to answer important questions. What customers need is enough information to answer two questions, um, and there, uh, there's at least two. There's Probably two uh, other use cases, but there's two in particular from a customer's use case perspective. One is I'm thinking about using this software. I am using this software. What is my risk? Okay. You really need to know all the dependencies transitively. Now, maybe the deliverer only needs to give just enough so that the receiver can figure out the rest. They're asking a lot of, the, of every recipient. Why not just figure it out once and be done with it? Okay, so I think you ought to go recursive transitively all the way down. If you really don't want to, and no, you don't have to include embed that data within the executable. Okay, posting it on a website somewhere is fine. Okay, uh, but making it available all the way down transitively is best from the point of view of the consumer. The second use case is oh my gosh, there's a really bad vulnerability in a component. Where is it? And again, if I receive transitive information all the way down as a customer, I can rapidly analyze that data. Could I refigure it out without that transitive data? Yes, as long as you give me enough where all the bottoms are publicly known. Uh, but it's much better um, and more accurate if you provide the transitive data all the way down. Because if you don't provide the transitive data all the way down, you can often estimate them, but those estimates are sometimes wrong. And so you're, it's much, much better if the SBOM is complete. Um, understanding the licensing attached to open source as well. Right, I'm focusing on the security. This is actually one of the distinctions. I mean, SPDX is very interested in both the licensing and the security aspects of it. Um, I'm not really excited. I, I, I know that some people have argued that, hey, we ought to have a, a format that talks about security, and then we'll have a different list of a, a different SBOM listing the components for licensing. I don't understand that argument. It's the same components. If you have no, something listed two different ways, the one thing I'm sure of is they'll be inconsistent, and I won't be able to figure out which one's right. So yep. uh, I do agree the licensing is important. Um, you know, SPDX in particular has been uh, very, very interested in this. Um, and there's multiple reasons to be, to want to know about the licensing. If you are doing M&A, obviously you care about that of software you're acquiring. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're reusing, you want to make sure you comply with the license conditions. Uh, a lot of software today incorporates lots of open source software and that's okay. 
Uh, but then you need to make sure that you comply with all the licenses that you're required to comply with. Um, thankfully, most people end up using a relatively short list of licenses. So once you identify that short list, you're uh, usually in pretty good shape. But you know that's you need to get to that point. Yeah, and you know that, that this is kind of the same argument I used as to why um, you know uh, I believe we should have also more insights when it comes to to provenance. And by provenance, I mean you know not just the name of the I don't I'm not talking about the name of the contributors, but more like the the volume, the number, um, and probably now that I think about it, even like where is a software being built? Just like the factory of a serial is on the box to track you know potential contamination of the the factory and you know. Uh, need to recall maybe a bunch of boxes because they were contaminated by some disease or whatever. There is a you know back to the point on on the solar wind uh, you know issue. Uh, right. It might be good sometimes to even be tracking where the the build came from. So I mean right. you know that, obviously it's a maturity thing, but um, you know. yeah, well, actually there's actually an ongoing discussion and some debates about this. Uh, there's there's absolutely work that's going along these lines. Um, I, I would be remiss if I don't mention a couple projects. Uh, one of them is Salsa, which is working to spec out, uh, so, you know, some of these things. You know, how do I, you know, uh, about to, how do I get this software? You know, how is it built? Um, there's other techniques like, uh, well, uh, there's Tough and Intoto, uh, which yeah. try to record this. Uh, there's actually a little bit of a philosophical debate. Um, about uh, about builds. So let me give you both sides. I do have a viewpoint uh, on this. Um, one is we want to uh, identify where we build it and protect the heck out of it. Uh, Google very much works in this camp, and uh, there's good reasons for that. They spent an incredible amount of money. I mean, they they actually you know source boards, rebuild their own hardware, you know, for their own data set, control their own data centers. I mean, they spend an incredible amount of money to get really, really strong confidence in the hardware and software used to build uh, other software. Um, right. You know, I respect those kinds of efforts, and certainly I would agree protecting your build environments and uh, is, a, is a good thing. Uh, however, I think most organizations just can't afford that kind of stuff. And, of course, there is a risk that even if you do all that, how do you? How are you absolutely sure that everything's okay? Because once they get in, it's often very hard to notice that they did. I mean, that was the. Yeah. That's. I think that's a lesson learned from Solar Winds. Is once somebody gets into a build system, it's really hard to detect, and they can just stay there and do damage for a very, very long time if they want to. So, um, I'm actually a believer in. In the short term, yes, do harden your build environments. In the long term. I think we need to be removing more and more towards an approach called a verified reproducible builds. This yeah. is where, um, gee, I you know it was built. I, I there's source code. It was built. How do I know that the code I'm going to be running, the package I'm going to be running, really was generated from that source code? And the answer can be, well, we're going to rerun it multiple times with multiple different organizations and verify that everybody gets the same answer. Once you do that, that means that you aren't as dependent. I mean, yes, you still want secure build environments, but now we have mechanisms to detect even really sneaky attackers because if they get in, 
Sure, they'll subvert one, but now they've got to subvert all of them, and you can even check it later, which makes the job attacker's job far, far harder. So in the short term, yes, we absolutely should be improving the protection of our build environments. Good idea. Long term, I think we ought to move increasingly towards verified reproducible builds because this product provides us a protection beyond what even very, very secured build systems can do because now the attacker has to subvert multiple systems uh, in a way that's much, much harder to do, including future systems that aren't even being used yet because you can retest things later. Yeah, I'll take both, you know, but I, so are you saying uh, Google is kind of against uh, the evidence piece of it? Of no, like... no, no, I, I, I think against is the wrong term. That's not fair at all. In fact, uh, Google's been very supportive of many of these efforts. Um, it's just that um, uh, today, they, you know, it's not just Google. I, I use Google as an example. They're not the only example. Or just, it's because sure. I've had some interactions with them, and, and they do some really cool stuff. I don't want, I don't want to, people to come away with, oh, these crazy Google people. That's not the best. Okay? <laughs> well, they created uh, most of the stuff we use anyway with Kubernetes right. and stuff. There, there, there's some smart people there. Um, but my, my point, though, is that um, they've been very concerned about build security, and so they've taken really strong steps, and that's awesome. Right. But, it's kind of anti-zero trust uh, way of thinking, though, right? When you start thinking that way, uh, I wouldn't say it's anti, but it's certainly you know doubling down on I'm going to have. It's it's not necessarily wrong. It's a strategy, and if you have yeah. the resources to implement that kind of strategy, maybe that makes sense for their organization. But I, I what what concerns me isn't so much that Google's doing it. Go for it. Okay, it's just that I don't think yeah. many not other organizations, can. not everyone, can reproduce that particular approach. And so I think that there's nothing wrong with, with the improved security of what they're doing. Keep doing that. But I think longer term, um, yes, well, if you can harden up your build environments, do that. But in the long term, we I think we should move slowly towards uh, verified reproducible builds. Now, the problem with verified reproducible builds is once you get them and start testing them, it's great. But historically, nobody ever tried to do that. And so it's typically effort to, on the yeah. software developers to make that happen, to make things reproducible. So um, it's a this is a, a North Star that I think we should move towards eventually. It's going to take time. So work on the securing the build environments right now. You can do at least some of that right now today. And then let's slowly build towards that larger future. That's going to take time to get there. And you need to start there to get there, but you also need to not depend on it right away because we're not ready for that today. Yeah, absolutely. So I have one more question before we get to the audience questions and we only have 10 minutes left. But um, so when you think about, um, you know, the, the the provenance in the sense of the the number of stalls or the, 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 the last comments or the number of people uh, reviewing code and all these kind of health, I call it health, but I don't know how you want to describe it. But like a, you know, a healthy, measures of, measures of risk. Yeah, the, the kind of a vibrant project versus like a one guy in the garage, right? Kind of thing. Uh -huh. you, are you tracking any any kind of work being done by any kind of open source project that will give you some type of a rank or some type of a an idea of, of the, the the open source uh, you know community behind a, a project? Absolutely. Okay, so let me point to a couple here because. Uh, there are different approaches to dealing with this, and therefore, and you know, right now, um, 
it's it's not it's not at all obvious that any one of them is the right answer anyway. So we've got several. So first of all, um, I, I mentioned earlier the OpenSSF best practices badge work. If you are developing an open source project, please work to get a badge. Um, uh, we've got thousands of participating projects, um, and a number of people have received badges of varying levels. Um, another project is called the Scorecards Project. Now, the open the best practices badge, what it does is it has a series of questions. Some of them are automated, and we try to automate what we can, but we focus really on the what are the important things, even if some of them are very, very hard to automate, automatically check. The Scorecards Project takes the opposite view. Hey, let's just figure out what we can measure automatically and measure what we can. Okay. Um, the good news of the Scorecards project is that you can apply it to any open source project, heck, you can apply it to just projects in general, and get a score of what is it doing. Now, you know, Scorecards is imperfect. If, for example, one of the things it wants to look for is to, is there a static analysis tool in use? There may be one and it doesn't notice it. It may say, oh, I don't find one, even if there is one. Um, but then that's just kind of the nature of these kinds of tools. There's, the tools are never perfect, but they can give you at least a, hmm, that it didn't find it. Maybe there is one, but I'm going to have to investigate further. And it'll give me an idea of some risks. I mentioned Salsa, SLSA.dev, a good place to go. Uh, they're working on a spec uh, more, not for the final delivery. Uh, I, I, I probably should, so, Salsa, stay, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Salsa stands for supply chain levels for software artifacts. It's basically, you know, it's kind of a checklist about you know, preventing tampering and integrity of, of packages. Um, uh, there are some other projects too that are working, but those are at least, um, uh, but those are at least three that uh, come to mind immediately. That's good enough. All right, let's take a few questions before uh, we leave you the time to uh, to give okay. the closing closing words. Okay, and we've taken um, some questions too, thankfully. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's start with this one. Uh, from your experience, is there any difference from the security perspective between the various open source community edition products and their enterprise edition siblings? Oh, it's a good question. And unfortunately, I'm gonna have to give you the standard lawyer answer, which is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's um, true though. Yes, it, it is absolutely true. Um, I mean, the, the question is, what's the difference between them? Um, there are community edition projects that are, in fact, the code-wise is the same. And what you're really right. asking about is a, is a service sure. difference. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, what, you know, you know, when you have a problem, uh, what do you see? Okay, uh, you know, that's you, less and less, though, right? I mean, most right. companies now keeping some of the coolest features like Outback and FIPS compliance and things right. in their paid paid version, right? Right, and, it was, but if, if, and now if it is, the question is, what are those differences and do they matter from a security perspective? Um, and, usually, you know, yeah, it, funny enough, and I usually find them to be mostly cyber things like Allback and, you know, ICAM and, you know, uh, FIPS compliance crypto bits and, you know. Right, right. And, and so the, the question here is, you know, does that matter for your use case? Uh, you right. know, and and un so unfortunately, there isn't a simple answer. You really... You know, whenever the question, I my experience is whenever the question is X better than Y, the the answer really is I we don't know without going and evaluating X and Y. Right. And there's no yeah. royal road other than that. Uh, that said, usually yeah. there's a way to figure out what the difference is, and then at least that gives you a leg up to compare them. Yeah. 
another lawyer answer for you. Uh, <laughs> if the federal government just dumped Windows desktop and switched to Linux, what percentages of hacks would disappear? Oh my goodness! No one I has the number. I can't tell you. I don't even have the number of being in the government after being in the government. So well, and of course, which Windows are we talking? Um, Windows XP, Server, Windows ninety yeah. five. Uh, are are mm -hmm. we going all the way to Windows seven, maybe? Um, mm -hmm. You know the. Um, I, I I honestly I, I don't There's know. There's also the plenty of, of CVs on Linux. Let's let's face it. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And and the answer for all those things, frankly, um, I mean, you you really need to uh, harden things down when you're deploying anything, not just desktops, but certainly desktops. Um, and someone so made I, a good it, point also. Like the, the the user experience for people moving from Windows to Linux would probably not be an easy thing overnight for most of the government employees. It, it depends on what they're doing, right? Um, right. So I, I think increasingly, folks are you know if you're using mainly your web browser and maybe a mail client, you probably won't notice. If it's you're a lot using of, a specialized lot of work, though, right? It's I mean most most government work is Word, Excel, right? So well, it depends on where you are. I think that's that's historically true. I think increasingly people are starting to move to things like Office three sixty five. Um, in which case it's, uh, we're, you're using a web browser. You're not really yeah, using you can do the web, the web a, version, the web version. So, uh, I, I, unfortunately, this is definitely going to be another, it depends. Um, uh, clearly though, I think there is, I think there is a gradual move off of, uh, client side applications for, um, off for office work. Um, I, I, you know, I, I very rarely nowadays open up, uh, any, uh, office suite, uh, locally, it's almost always um, a cloud-based system. Uh, so, you know, I think yeah. increasing, increase, you know, that's what's happening in the commercial space. And as that happens in the government, a lot of things are going to slowly change. All right. So last question before the potting words, I'll, I'll give my uh, my my quick uh, answer. And then it's after uh, over to you after that. But first, have you considered the security rating or evaluation process? For larger open source projects to give integrator more confidence in using their code. In fact, we already answered that question. We actually right, have several the, uh, uh, the uh, best practices. Uh, you know, best practices. Best practices badge. The um, uh, scorecards project salsa. Uh, Is the badge OpenSSF? Is that an OpenSSF? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's thing? the OpenSSF badge. I will. I, I will have to quickly uh, throw a link in. No, it's fine. I'll find it. Keep talking. Okay. Uh, so I'll look for the open, open SSF best practices badge should, uh, right. uh, get you there. Okay. Uh, historically, that was actually the CII best practices badge. Uh, yep. so, and that's still where the uh, URL is today. Um, I'm going to slip in, I'm going to remove the, the slide, the EN, uh, cause then people will get, although if, if you, if English is your primary language, you'll end up with the English version. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, yeah, and the fact that actually gives the broader issue issue which an excuse to talk about a broader issue, which is software development is global, not just open source, not just proprietary, yep. it's global. And so uh you, you know folks who want to say, hey, I only want to have use software that's only written in the US by US cleared personnel, you're going to be very, very <laughs> disappointed to find out that uh you can't use anything. So we need to move beyond that. It's a globalized world. We need to manage risks, not try to eliminate all possible risks. The latter is not possible. There we go. All right, before I give you the potting words, I'm going to remind everybody to subscribe to the show at the internetofTime.tv, but also next Tuesday, 1 p.m., 
We're going to have uh, Armand uh, Dadgal, uh, who is the co-founder and CTO of HashiCorp, uh, join us to talk about his journey and, and the companies and what they've been working on, on some of the uh, Vault projects, uh, SBOM, uh, Policy as Code, and all these good stuff. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, now, David, thank you so much, first of all, for joining us. It was a lot of fun. We really learned a lot today. I think a lot of people uh, were able to have a, a good understanding now of kind of uh, why to pay attention to SBOM and, and the, the risk of supply chain. Um, so I wanted to thank you for that. But now it's over to you for the parting words. Okay, just a few parting words. Um, before using any software, it doesn't have to be open source software. You know, take a quick, quick look at it. Um, I found that uh, even just a few minutes of evaluation before you start using something, you can learn a lot. Uh, typically, there's more than one way to do something. So, you know, look at uh, your options, um, you know, in, including things like, are they trying to develop it? You know, are, is there more than one developer? You know, it doesn't seem to be maintained. Um, are they trying to develop secure software? And then that brings us back to the other question, other things that I mentioned earlier. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can really help make software far more secure than otherwise. Uh, so let me do the quick recap. First of all, if you develop software and you don't know how to have take any courses or anything, please take a course. There's a free course from opensf.org. Go to the training site. Uh, if you manage software developers, get them to take a course. Then you have to do that one, but again, most software developers don't know how to do it, and so they don't, they can't do it. They don't know how. Uh, if you're op open source software, try to get an OpenSSF best practices badge. Put tools in your pipeline. Look for problems. Get rid of the problems early. Monitor for known vulnerabilities. Turn on Dependabot or whatever. Uh, you know, basically turn on mechanisms to warn you about vulnerabilities uh, that have been discovered in the code you can depend on. And then prepare to rapidly update. Use package managers, use automated tests, um, and make it easy for your users to upgrade. Use scorecards, use Salsa, and so on. And much more broadly, again, I mentioned earlier at the beginning, I just want to wrap up. We're going to have to continuously improve. Attackers do get better. Uh, although it's rare, new kinds of attacks do get discovered. Um, and uh, and so you need to be aware of those new kinds of attacks and say, oh, wait a minute, does that apply to me? And just like anything else you do in your software, you want to continuously improve. Thank you so very much for your time. Thanks so much. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you next Tuesday, 1 p.m. Uh, with Almond. Stay safe. Bye-bye.